the starting point for the dissolution is not a total dissolution. It is a, a if you like, trimming away at the edges. Um, so, and this is what really, I think, challenges the, the traditional view that we're all told that <clears throat> Henry VIII dissolves monasteries because he has his eye on the, on the prize, if you like, um, on the, the very wealthy monasteries that, uh, whose money he, he covers. Actually, the starting point is almost the complete inverse of that. The starting point is he has an eye on the poorest. He has an eye on those that are no longer viable, that are absolutely on their knees. Maybe the, the, the property that they were given when they were created was simply never going to be enough. And two or three hundred years on, it absolutely isn't enough anymore. Um, the numbers in living there are too small to be sustainable. Maybe they've not had new recruits in many years. And that for um, the first half of the 1530s, right up until um, really 1537, um, that is the target. Trim away those smaller institutions and make the best of the rest. Make, make those that remain the very best that they can be, of course, aligned to what Henry wants, the kind of regime for the church that Henry and Cromwell are planning. So um, those that remain, in his view, must be very much aligned to the royal plan for the church, so a church that is really almost a... Um, a branch of state authority ensuring that um, his subjects across England and Wales are loyal to him and to his new headship of the church, um, and that the the leading monasteries should become almost like a sort of um, English version of the uh, of the Habsburgs escorial, you know, a, a, a sort of um, palace monastery, um, a great palatial church institution that sort of reflects glory back towards the king. That's clearly his plan right the way through almost to the end of the decade, that having trimmed away the smaller, poorer places, we can almost double down on those great institutions, you know, the Westminster Abbeys and the Glastonbury's and the um, St. Albans Abbey and Bury St. Edmunds Abbey, these, these great uh, royal monasteries that that will just add luster to to the kind of head of the church that he wants to be so with that putting himself as the head of the church he, he so before that point he's not got any authority to do these these closures but with that then he put he, he's combining state and, and and the state religion into one thing and put so he's he's now in charge and that that's how he gets the the, the power the the to do this Yes, absolutely. So the um, if you look at the the text of that statute of supremacy that he passes in 1534, the blueprint for what I've been describing is all there. Actually, it's a very short statute, but it's all there because he gives himself as head of the church the right to, uh, as as he says, visit. So that and that and that's not just passing through as a guest, visit as in um, 
place under scrutiny and investigation um, all church institutions um, in England. And that's not just monasteries, but um, cathedrals, parish churches, um, and um, those foundations like schools and colleges, which are ecclesiastical, um, uh, including the universities. He gives himself the right to to put them under his scrutiny and, and jurisdiction. And he says in the Statute of Supremacy that that extends to the right where necessary to reform them. And the reform he has in mind at that stage isn't uh, stripping away all traces of Catholic doctrine. The reform he has in mind is the kind of rationalisation that I've been speaking about, the, um, that he gives himself the right in the statute to make a decision. Uh, some of these churches and their monastery communities are viable. Some of them are not. Some of them are not well managed. They should go. Um, and that's what um, traditionally in the church a visitor did. Um, and in fact, actually, in the in the Church of England still today, um, the visitor is um, uh, the purpose of the visitor is, is really to make a judgment. Is this institution um, efficiently managed? It's a bit like a sort of grand audit of an institution. And even before Henry VIII, um, where a bishop visited a church institution and th felt there's something very funny going on with the financial management of this institution, they they could make drastic, drastic interventions. And Henry really is, all he's doing is taking that existing machinery of how to manage church institutions, and he's just putting himself in charge of it. He's, he's taking it away from the traditional church authorities, and he's giving it to himself, but he's applying it in the same way. And mm. um, yeah, it's all there in 1534. And what's interesting is that the leaders of monasteries and priories, they sign up to this. Um, they are not in principle opposed to the king assuming these um, this this authority and these these uh, this old machinery of subjecting institutions to that kind of scrutiny, they'd always been quite equivocal about archbishops, bishops, and the papacy using those uh, kinds of mechanisms to subject them to scrutiny. And in some ways, I think um, monastery leaders are are possibly even more inclined to accept. Um, royal authority over the way that they run themselves than they are um, church authority. Um, they'd always been suspicious of the papacy in England um, and and for really quite sort of um, simple reasons. I, they'd always been suspicious of the foreignness of the papacy. They'd always been suspicious of the um, uh, grasping, um, uh, money-hungry uh, tendency of the papacy, the papacy tending to cream off money from churches around Christendom and then use it to its own ends. So I think it's pretty clear that within months of Henry making himself head of the church, the view in the leadership of monasteries is, in many respects, this could be for the better. In many respects, this could be a sort of reset for us. Um, they, the problem of smaller, poorer monasteries is going to be taken away from them. They, they no longer have to worry about how on earth do we keep this poor old institution going because it's on its knees. 
Um, and they have reason to be confident because if, if Henry is saying, I'm going to take you under my wing and we're going on a, a really promising and exciting journey together, I think for a time, the monastery leaders are inclined to take that at face value. That, that um, They're well aware of the close relationship between state and, and church that is emerging in other parts of, of Europe um, and how that has been the beginning of a kind of beautiful friendship. So, um, and, and Cromwell has got a good close personal relationship with some of these heads of monasteries in England. And I think that not only are they inclined to think in general terms, the crown may protect us, but I think they feel we know these people personally. Um, Henry has been very present in and out of some of the main monasteries in, in England, the leading monasteries. In the early part of his reign, he spends lots of time at places like Reading Abbey, St. Albans Abbey, Westminster. So they know the Tudor regime at a personal level. They sort of know its human face. And I think that that helps to build a sense that this is not a, an end of something, but it is actually a new beginning that could be positive. Hmm. So it feels like it's going to be mutually beneficial Maybe a big change, but it's it's for the best. It's taking everyone forward. Absolutely. Modernizing. Yes, that that this is a sort of um, a, a new departure, but one that doesn't necessarily carry with it a real threat. Um, and I think that that feeling continues in many respects for another eighteen months, two years after uh, Henry's. Uh, headship is confirmed by Parliament. And it's really only after the, the shock to everyone of the uprising, the rebellion that we know of as the Pilgrimage of Grace in, uh, in 1536, um, that perhaps there is an awareness that um, the, this new relationship with the Crown is volatile, um, and that the, the future direction of that relationship is now much more uncertain um, uh, than it had been 18 months previously. So I think for much of 1535, there's still a sense, um, yes, we need to um, get with the project. We need to really get behind this. I think the leadership um, are really trying to ensure that they bring their, their monks with them. Um, uh, but then for, for Henry personally, I think, I think historians generally agree that, that that shock that some of his subjects do not share his, um, his vision for a Tudor future um, in 1536, that, that shock is actually shared by, um, by many different constituencies. And I think um, as they emerge from that, that moment of rebellion, um, into the, the closing years of the decade, things do become much more unpredictable, much more sort of febrile. Um, and um, there's no doubt that some of that sense that, that of, of common cause between monastic England and the king is beginning to, to fracture. So what was the, um, what I suppose created the pilgrimage of grace and what, what actually happened to make that them gather and decide that they needed to 
talk to the king it, about it's really it, it's a sort of a what today i suppose we call a kind of perfect storm it's a coming together of different things um so uh the new um taxation regime that is being um imposed rolled out in um provincial england is um profoundly resisted by um uh, local gentry in the in the northern counties coupled with um, or coinciding with the um, first phase of the closure of smaller monasteries, uh, smaller, less viable monasteries um, in the um, late spring and summer months of 1536. And that's a very visible spectacle, whilst the imposition of new financial levies is is one that sort of if, if if it doesn't come across your eyes, it certainly hits hits the the pocket, and and I think it is the coincidence of those things, the the sense that um, the crown is coming after your hard earned livelihood at the same time as that old certainty on your horizons of that that tower that church that 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 cluster of buildings that's always been on your horizons and that your family have been connected with time out of mind um is suddenly being closed and um that early phase in um uh the east midlands and 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 over the humber into into the north um of closures in uh april may um, and then into into the um, the summer months, August September, uh, especially of 1536, is very. It's the only phase really of of closures of monasteries that that really truly is is efficiently done. Um, that uh, and so people in the in those counties would have seen um, something very new happening, unfolding in front of their eyes. Um, uh, and and it's clear that the Tudor regime is feeling its way rather, and so you're getting lots of people milling about. Um, the the accounts of the monasteries that are caught up in the in the rebellion um, make very clear that one of the really striking things is is because the king's commissioners have arrived to close these places that there isn't quite literally a lot of standing around. There are um, members of these monastery communities who are now told um you can no longer go back into your um church and and continue your daily monastic life um but nor, nor can you leave until you've got a license to leave um and one of the reasons that when when the rebellion very uh, very beginning it's it starts in in the the lincolnshire town of louth one of the reasons that that episode that that um happens after evensong one day um, uh, that it attracts such a crowd is clearly there are crowds of these um, sort of demonasticized priests wandering about. They they don't quite know where to go or what to do. Um, and we have descriptions of them. Um, one of them who's sort of wearing half of his habit, and he's also borrowed a jacket from a from a layman. So. Um, and and to the local neighbourhood, this must have looked very strange. People that they were accustomed to to see wearing a habit, and now they've got 
somebody's borrowed jacket and they've um, they've got a cap that they've picked up from somewhere, and yet underneath all of that, they are still dressed as a priest. And and that sort of visibly unsettling spectacle, I think, really does um, serve to sort of intensify the um, the sense of upheaval. Um, and it's a it's an indication that the um, the the royal regime may have quite well thought through reasons for rationalizing as i've said but actually how to put this into effect hasn't really been thought through um and closing even making clear that it's smaller less viable institutions being closed when it comes to actually implementing that given that so many of these places um cluster around centers of population um to the people on the ground that doesn't look like just a handful of places being taken out. It looks like a sudden transformation of your own town. Um, and there were, was a high concentration of smaller, poorer monasteries in Lincolnshire, in Yorkshire, um, in Lancashire. And so in those parts of the country, undoubtedly, it would have felt as if um, the royal regime has arrived in town and it's going to leave your town utterly transformed. Um, and I think that that, that fuels the anxiety. But it, it becomes clear that this is not primarily a rebellion about challenging reformation or supporting monasteries. It's about challenging interference in, in the locality. Henry is determined, if, if he's ever consistently determined on one thing, he's determined on a kind of uniform authority across what is still a very provincial kingdom. Um, royal authority in reality doesn't, isn't easily imposed in a uniform way right across the Kingdom of England and Wales that Henry inherits in 1509. What he wants to do is to establish a kind of uniform authority that means the same in Lancashire as it does in London. Um, and that's what people are resisting in 1536. Um, um, and it's clear that they're not opposed to the principle of a Tudor king. Um, they're opposed to the principle of, of centralization and institutionalization of government. Um, and they see this visibly with the closure of small monasteries, financially with the imposition of new taxes, and they challenge it. Was there any attempt to communicate with the wider communities what was happening? Yes. I mean, one of the things that, that I, um, I've done my best to investigate, I'd love to, to um, turn up more indications. Um, historians have often said, oh, well, this is, this is a, in a sense, a storm in a teacup because what's happening in 1536 in the, in the late summer and autumn is rather confined geographically to a particular area of the kingdom. Um, but it's pretty clear that other parts of the country are following what's happening very closely. There is evidence of um, other monastery communities um, showing sympathy, um, not necessarily um, uh, doing more than expressing sympathy for um, what's happening um, and 
criticism of how the regime is reacting. Um, we don't know for certain if individuals associated with monastery communities, say in the south of England, decide to hurry off to the north and join the uh, the band of rebels. Um, but it's not inconceivable that they do. And there is a sense in the regime itself that um, it's possible that other, other regions of the country are not that far from um, this kind of uh, upheaval and, and, and challenge as well. So there, there is, I think, at least until probably the spring of 1537, there is a, there is a fear that the reverberations of this could, could um, extend, uh, extend further. Uh, but 1530s England and Wales, as I've said already, are, are very provincial places, provincial in the sense of not being well connected. Um, we know that it takes even a royal messenger on a series of horses, uh, you know, two and a half to three days to get from London to York. Um, this is, um, and unlike many parts of mainland Europe, this is a, still very much a what we might call a kind of manuscript culture that um, that um, information is carried by scraps of parchment and um, scribbled notes and by um, messengers on horseback, um, uh, by word of mouth. Um, it, it becomes clear when one works through the surviving letters and papers from these years of the 1530s just how frustrating for everybody the the difficulties of communication really are um even the the commissioners of the crown charged with closing down small monasteries in 1536 they not just because of the pilgrimage of grace they they give up um by about october because they say so many parts of the country that they need to go to are no longer passable. The roads are flooded or filled with mud, um, and you cannot get anywhere in many parts of England in any serious way between what late October and about the end of February. Um, and and I think that that stands as an obstacle to um, the direct action of potential challenges but it also stands as a huge obstacle to Henry's ambition um, uh, and this is why there is always it seems a um, a disjunction you might say between Henry's ambition to have uniform authority across his kingdom and and his likelihood of achieving it because the kingdom's infrastructure is just not um, adequate uh to achieve that um england is unusual in europe for having fewer large well-developed cities outside of the capital and and york england is a a, a, a kingdom really of medium-sized and smaller towns rather than rather than major cities um if you compare it to say um uh, Rhineland, Germany in the early 16th century or um, much of the Kingdom of France where you've got well-developed, highly capitalised, very sophisticated cities. You don't really see, break out of, what, London, York, Bristol, 
um, in, in the reign of Henry VIII, you really haven't got many other places that are um, anything like as developed as that. And, and that really is um, shaping the kind of course of Reformation that we see in the 1530s, I think. It's interesting. Even Henry can be floored by a bit of mud. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and it's, it's um, I mean, it's amusing now, but the one of the joys of reading some of the correspondence that the king's agents are sending back to Westminster or to Thomas Cromwell in his office in Austin Friars in the City of London um, are those practical things that, you know, it's um, sometimes they move with incredible speed. I mean, in the summer, you can tell that the roads are really hard and impacted. Um, one of the commissioners manages to get from South Somerset to Bristol, which is a journey of, well, 45 miles or so. Um, and they managed to get there in an afternoon, which is extraordinary. I mean, you'd struggle today just because of the, the queues of the, of the traffic. But um, to do that on horseback is, is remarkable. But then there are other times when, yes, they, they can see where they want to get to, go, get to, but they just can't get through the roads. And I think we, one of my frustrations, perhaps, with the way that we, we have tended to represent the Tudors as, as a great modernising force is that we've lost sight of just how they may, may be modernizing in their ambitions, but those are ambitions played out in a very medieval landscape. Um, and we, we mustn't forget that. You know, Henry VIII is, um, he's remarkable in many ways. He has ambitions to be a great Renaissance monarch, but, but the canvas that he's working on is, is no different from his medieval pre predecessors, from Henry V or Edward III, really. What was the, the Valor Ecclesiasticus and what was its purpose? So the Valor is best understood, I think, as the Tudor Doomsday Book. Um, so it's an audit of the property and income of all church institutions, not just monasteries, all church institutions. It's intended above all, first and foremost, simply for Henry to understand what is the um, scale of this thing, the church in England, that he has now effectively become chief executive of.